Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor located in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Joined by my two usual co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato, a physical therapist up in Boston, and Dr. Derek Miles, a physical therapist in Cincinnati, Ohio. How's it going, guys? How's it going, Mike? How's it going, Mike? Not bad. Did you both get new headsets? I feel like the odd oh. man out. No, this is this is no. old school. No, the, you don't want to see the inside of these earmuffs. They're falling apart, uh, getting oh. to the point where I might need a scotch tape for them. It's all right, as long as they work. But they're nice. I just they're realized good. you both have like yeah. the same set on, it looks like. So we're supposed to be talking yeah. about... Well, this would probably be like two podcasts, right? We kind of discussed that. The first one is going to be some changes that we made in our clinical practice, which will be a fun little discussion about our beliefs and the things we do. And then the second one we're going to do is going to be specifically on schools. So we've gotten a lot of requests on this. Um, I do a Sunday Q&A, and I got several questions actually this past Sunday about this topic, or these two topics, about schooling and up-to-date practice and so on and so forth. So I think a lot of people will enjoy this. Um, before we get into that... Is there anything new with you guys? Last podcast was in March, so we're here in May. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, working on my garden, um, all the fun things that come with uh, having a backyard now. What do you have in your garden? A bunch of different varieties of peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, and some beans. I feel like that I would kill everything. Yeah. That's why you overplant. That way, if you uh, lose a third of it, you're still okay. I just have a few. That was my rationale. Erica is like super into succulents. Like we have, I don't even know how many succulents at this point. I didn't even know this is a thing until a couple of years ago. Um, but they're pretty cool. Like little cacti, I guess is the plural word for cactus. Yeah, it's hard to kill them as long as you don't like overwater them. Water them. That's but what she says. I have well. one. I have one coffee. I have like one coffee plant in my win, windowsill that I've been proud of. I haven't killed it yet. It won't produce coffee probably ever in its lifetime, but I'm okay with uh, that. <laughs> yeah. What's like, um, Derek? Is the weather good for like gardening up there? Uh, well, it's been like weather by civil recently to where one day it'll be in the 30s and the next the 80s so it makes no sense um i've already killed uh quite a few plants because i was under the impression i'd be able to get things in the ground in mid-april and i learned that that could not be farther from the truth so you know you live you learn it's a novice gardening progression (laughs) 
are you like uh do you have any resources like farmer's almanac or something like that you're going by or uh, the Farmer's Almanac, I have some friends. Well, part of it is most of what I know is from Florida and my friends in Extension down there. So I was asking questions. And then I went out and started befriending some people who run nurseries around here. That way I can pick knowledge off of them. And now you're like breaking down cows yeah. as well on Tuesdays? Yes. Prior to this podcast, I was assisting in butchering a cow. Uh, it's Derek's uh, ready for the know, apocalypse. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, no. I, so I think this, yeah, certainly not ready. Uh, but I, I think this is one of those moments where uh, part of it is I just want to learn how to do these things. Yeah. And I was talking with an athlete actually earlier this morning about sometimes what we see in one of the main themes we've brought up on here before people are like overemphasizing what their, t- or what your total is or what your physique looks like. And like, cool but if if those are really the main things you like predicate your happiness off of there's probably some issues there and you know you've probably painted yourself too narrow of a picture and uh, the what i said to my athlete was like well my total isn't that impressive but you should see the tomatoes i'm going to have later this summer (laughs) and and well-rounded human and you know well yeah but it is just that like where do we place that emphasis and, yeah. you know, I, right before we got on this, I was talking to an athlete who was at a wedding this weekend and like he didn't pull his numbers from two weeks ago. And he was like two years ago, this would have driven me crazy. But, you know, I've been or he's been coached with me for long enough now to where he was like, it'll be there next week. I'd rather go have fun. And I think yeah. athletes a lot of times just forget that, like, there is a life outside of the platform. Mm-hmm. Lies. Barbella's life there. Well, if you talked to, uh, yeah, if you had been hanging out with my uncles a few years ago, you may have entered in a tomato growing contest. That's a pretty legit contest in the Amato family. It's the just the biggest. Yeah, one and, you know, and then, but but here's the thing: like, do you think, like, at what level in the tomato growing competition world are like? I'm sure there are individuals that are like tomatoes are life. You should see the stripes <laughs> on my purple zebra tomatoes. My seed to meat ratio is perfect. And, and you know, it's just like, I, I just wonder if in each of these like sub niche areas, like people go as hard and it's just that we see this small sliver yeah. of people in the lifting community <clears throat> of like, that's awesome. You have like whatever going on in life but have you considered there's just a little bit more out there? It's it's kind of funny because it actually ties in well with the podcast today because we've had this conversation many times where like we're just complaining about clinical practice and we're like, I wonder, and like my thing is, is like when I got into coffee or like with my wife in the pastry world, I'm like, I wonder if people complain this much about other industries as much as we complain about clinical practice. But I don't think it's even complaining a lot of times. I like I, I certainly do my fair share of that. I will admit to that. But I think sometimes it's just sheer frustration. Yeah. And in the same vein, it's this overemphasis or emphasis on this small niche of the big picture, whether it be like manual therapy or even things like ACL rehab. It's like, well, within the rehabilitation professions 
we have narrowed ourselves down to this like small identity within the gross profession. And I think a lot of times we even forget that like each one of our clinics is different in the population we serve. I mean, mm-hmm. I've worked in two pediatric sports clinic and one general sports clinic in my career and vastly different populations in sports they present with what's going on. Like in, I, I think sometimes when we use the Royal, we try and identify as the whole profession, we forget that there is just such a heterogeneity in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's where I was going with that. Am I, um, am, but, I, am I lagging at all with you guys? Just a little bit. Not that I've noticed. But I think that kind of segues into really where we wanted to go with this and discussing what has changed in our own clinical practice since we have started. Because I, I think a lot of times what people see is is the current message of what's getting put forth. But certainly, you know, that hasn't been the way we've always practiced. And we wanted to address some of the topics of how we have evolved over the years. And there was a podcast on You Are Not So Smart a while back that talked about, it opened with the fact that a lot of medical schools teach that by the time you're done with residency, 50% of what you learned here will be wrong because the evidence will move forward. And this is where I think the rehab professions don't do as good of a job in teaching some academic or intellectual humility is in that a lot of times it's thought that when you graduate, you're kind of a fully formed clinician and you can go out of school and you're ready to you know start your own practice or, you know, go to whatever weekend con ed that you need those letters behind your name. And really that is a paradigm shift between the rehab professions and medicine But it also comes out with this trope that we hear all the time of, well, the evidence just hasn't caught up to what I'm doing yet. And it turns out that most of the time when the evidence does catch up, it shows that what you were doing didn't have any good reason to be being done in the first place. And the the paper that I like referencing on this is from Morris, and it's beautifully titled. It's the answer is seventeen years. What is the question? Understanding time lags and translational research, and making the point that it actually takes about seventeen years for clinical practice to catch up with what the research is saying. And no matter how much reading you're doing, how much you're trying to stay on top of the evidence, you can't cover all of your bases out of it. And for me, so I just entered into my 14th year of practice. And when I first started, I certainly was in a much more specific bucket. And by that, I mean, I thought if we had one muscle weakness, we should give one exercise to address that. And it it was almost this one-to-one ratio. Well, we have quadriceps weakness. Well, then let's go do the leg extension machine. Or we have glute mead weakness because why not then we should be doing some type of hip abduction strength clamshells and, and not being able to look at it yeah clamshells of course uh but not being able to appreciate that like the system works together and i think i've went through a, a really weird evolution out of this to where 
you know, even we're talking about tendinopathy or muscle injury where we give a pretty specific prescription of exercises, the game really starts to become not only how do I address the deficit, but how do I keep the athlete athletic while they're going through whatever problems going on? And it creates a really weird paradigm of you just need to do something. And it doesn't inherently matter what that something is so long as like you're checking the boxes for some of the the physiological adaptations you need. Now to get, take it kind of back to where I was a minute ago. Like if you want to be good at a specific sport, then yes, there does need to be very specific training and doing some random exercise is likely not going to directly translate over to you becoming better at your specific sport, but it might make you a little bit better of an athlete. And I think the transition into being a pediatric therapist is really kind of hit home for me when talking about things like long-term athletic development model in that there's always this discussion around what is sports specialization? When should an athlete be okay to only play one sport? And if you really look at it, I don't think there's much difference between a 13 year old only playing baseball all the time and a 35 year old solely self-identifying with powerlifting. And I think if we had a little bit more emphasis on some like general athletic principles, we likely would be, better off. And that even comes into like how much we weight, how great an exercise is. And I've certainly in my own vernacular moved away from even trying to say we're going to do specific exercises into like the, we need to move in a different way. Just because I think sometimes the second we make it an exercise or we make it about training, it it does sound like it's this necessity that's prescriptive instead of like, this is a possible path forward. It's like, uh, I I think I've turned into one of the choose your own adventure books for uh, general fitness. Life RPG. Yeah, it's the uh, like... If you would like to increase your cardiovascular fitness, turn to page 47 and you open it up and it's just a picture of a rower. You know, it's just like it it all depends on where you want to go. And I think I've definitely transitioned more from being like a prescriptive clinician into like just trying to like point in the right direction. Yeah, so I think I can relate to that, Derek. Um, And this is probably more of a problem, I think for us, if we have this more kind of heavy strength and conditioning focus, especially a barbell focus and not trying to like let our biases show through too much and kind of force people into a box that we don't have, you know, robust evidence for in terms of certain diagnoses. And I'm sure Mike can speak to that more, but like, yeah, for, you know, dosage of exercise in the presence of, a broad concept like pain, we don't really have hard evidence to say like people need to be like squat bench and deadlifting. And that might not be accessible for everyone or realistic or enjoyable. So having, I think having more fluidity and more flexibility within programming has been a similar change for me as well. 
Yeah, I think something else that kind of adds in there, though, that I, I would, I guess, pile on to what I was saying is getting much more tuned into actually asking about intensity. Because when I first came out was certainly when um, things like treatment-based classification and like quote-unquote stabilization exercises were bigger. And I think there was a lot of what I would call sub-threshold dosing to actually challenge an athlete um, because I didn't know any better to ask if it was hard enough. I just assumed it wasn't hard or sorry, it was hard, um, but that was a Freudian slip if there ever was one. Um, but even then, I think there's a layer to it to where when we're talking about like guiding versus prescribing, the issue I have with a lot of stabilization exercises is the progression is predicated upon the clinician deciding it's good enough. And then it's just some arbitrary, like, oh, your bird dog looked great today. And, or your pelvis was neutral while your bird dog was going and alternating. And you're like, come on, man. Like it's like I said to you guys, before we got on this call earlier today, when I was butchering this cow and hanging one of the sides of beef, like I started laughing as I was in the freezer because the entire concept of pelvic neutral was hilarious as I'm trying to throw this side of beef on a hook. And you're like, you're not concerned about that. You're like, Hey, let me make sure that I'm not going to fall while I'm putting this thing up on the rail that it needs to be on. And I think even then there's a little bit of discussion about like how sterile we make exercise for the real world. And it's like, that's awesome that you can, use calibrated plates, uh, a Lico bar on a perfectly level surface, but like in a, you know, humidity controlled room with your, you know, whatever other equipment, ammonia tabs. And it's like, it's not how 99.99999% of life works. And I really wish I could have like recorded the butcher's face when I told her that like part of the impetus for why I was interested in this is because people thought they could change tissue with their hands as like, we're both pulling on this chuck as hard as we can to try and get it out from the cow after we've removed layers of tissue to get down to it in the first place. You're like, there's no way you're like reaching down and, and doing this. But I think it get kind of gets back to the same analogy with exercise to where most of what we, the consumers, see of meat is the stuff that's already been trimmed out. It looks nice and fancy. It's packaged in a way to make it, like, no pun intended, but kind of more digestible. And we forget that, like, there's more to the chicken than the breast, you know, and, and or, like, where that part of the cow came from and what its actual function was as tissue prior to being on the serving platter. And I think the same thing with the overemphasizing of certain movements, um, you know, it's like, it's cool that you can move that way and you can move well that way, but that's a very small part of movement in general. I would just say you're using the wrong technique. Like that's why you can't get down to that tissue and release it. It's, I, I would, I would love to see a clinician go in there who thinks they could change tissue structure and start like seeing what they could do. Uh, I mean, I, I, 
my hands were cramping when I got home today from sitting there and putting so much pressure, trying to like hold down things. But, you know, some people will probably say my palpation skills just aren't uh, exact enough, which is why that's happening. Did you melt the fuzz? <laughs> I, I, I definitely ripped some fuzz today. I don't know about <laughs> melting. <laughs> oh, man. No, yeah. The, uh, I, can, I think I came from a similar background with some of the stabilization exercise training in school. And I would say that in like in my early part of my career, that was probably like the biggest change I made besides stripping away a lot of like my manual therapy training from school. But I just remember like every body part had like the one thing I would try to look for from a stabilization standpoint. So it was like every knee pain had a gluteus medius, you know, deficit and every shoulder pain had like a lower trap deficit. And I feel like sometimes the way you're taught a model in school, uh, for better or for worse, is that you can find a lot of these things if you kind of hunt enough, but that the rigor and, like, validity of the testing is not, you know, up to snuff. So, yeah, just having someone hold, like, an end range lower trap raise for 30 seconds was, like, the test that I used to use when I was, like, a first second year. And, uh... You know, that was an easy thing to show a patient like, oh, look, you can't do that. So that sucks. Let's work on that. Um, you, and, you know, you, you, suck you, at you, you rehab is that most, most people get better anyway. <laughs> you know, the yeah, I would say looking back on it, that was probably one of the bigger changes and kind of getting away from this like local versus global stabilization model to looking more at like capacity and trying to actually challenge capacity. And when I understood that I couldn't really do that with just like a 10 pound dumbbell in the clinic, although I would argue I could probably still create enough force to do that with minimal weight. It it was like that early part of my journey where I was like, all right, I need to learn something new. And that something new was like getting deeper into like screen ticket showing. Yeah, it's... It is interesting how how heavy the rehab side of things are taught in the diagnosis category and how across the board, I, I feel comfortable saying poorly, they're taught in the prognosis and like ways to actually interact with the human side of things. And I think most tests really, it, like in school even, it's like, did you come to the right conclusion of the diagnosis, not could you lay out a plan to address what this person is seeing. And it's just funny, like, I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit, just even the evolution, since all of us have been practicing of the movement away from a specific diagnosis in the literature towards, you know, pain being a multifactorial thing, or maybe it just hurts. And the more we look for something to name, the harder it like becomes to actually determine that prognosis. Yeah, so I think um, when we were getting ready for this podcast, Derek put up like, you know, what are two to three things that changed for you in clinical practice since like schooling? So I'm in years, I'm six and a half years in at this point. Um, But I was, when I was thinking about this, like, I really think my beliefs about like 
experiencing pain and the meaning thereof were influenced well before I even got to my doctorate program. So like growing up in sports, growing up like um, throughout undergrad and grad school and like being really heavy into working for gyms and bodybuilding, my thought was very biomedical then. So like I had a shoulder surgery in 2004 for a torn labrum that I certainly wouldn't do today knowing what I know. But my thought process was, well, you have pain, there's something wrong with the body, you need an intervention to fix it. And so going into my doctorate, I had the same mindset. I was an interventionalist from my kind of stance. Like you present with pain. What are all these cool little things I can do to you? Can I scrape it? Can I tape it? Can I rub it? Can I pop it? Can I, you know, put a needle in it? And that was my thought of like pain is this object. That's this problem in the tissue that I need to solve uh, conservatively as possible. And then like going through school and starting to question some of that stuff from like, pain being this object that I need to fix within someone or a tissue issue to kind of a more nuanced understanding of it. That's probably my biggest shift away from being the fixer and doer and more towards the guide in clinical practice. Um, that would probably be the, the, the biggest change I've had throughout, not only just from my doctorate to now, but also just like from throughout life to now. Yeah. I think this is one of those instances where you know, when you start reflecting on like how you've changed as a clinician, it, it is always an interesting exercise because like I personally was like, well, how did I used to do this? And you're really kind of reflecting on it. And it, it's never this like switch that happens. It, it's this slow kind of metamorphosis into something else and I don't know that there is that like clear demarcation line, but I feel there are those moments where, you know, you come across a, a group of papers or you have an interaction and you're like, oh, I, I really need to question what I'm doing right now. And I think this gets kind of at like some of how changes in clinical practice happen as well it is you do have to have a little bit of a take to be that man in the arena and you know, have these discussions that are often uncomfortable. And it is that like, you've never learned anything from being right mentality. And when I hear the tropes, like we should always play nice in the sandbox and like, well, no, like that's not how we move forward. We move forward through some conflict and adversity because if we're always just patting each other on the back, then we all think we're doing a good job. And I don't care how many pillars your evidential like model goes off of. If there's one thing the evidence says time and time again, it's that we're not doing that great of a job. Hi, Camara. <laughs> Can't you smell the beef on you still? Yeah, well, I think I'm almost positive Kim is home, and that's what that is. No, yeah, I would. I will mute myself. That's so. fine. I'll I'll take up some audio space um, to reflect to reflect <laughs> on that. But yeah, like the, I, <laughs> Derek brings up a good point of like, and you know, I think it's like a continual process because I think Mike has talked. Me and Mike have talked about this a little bit too, where it's like, you know, sometimes you read, and I've been guilty of this in the past of reading some like obscure paper and then being like, how is that going to change your clinical practice? And I'm like, I don't know yet. We'll see. And, uh, but there's definitely been some like inflection points along the way where I'm just like, well, 
I get almost like uncomfortable where I'm like, I need to understand this better because I feel like I'm at a crossroads of how, how to move forward. And it's happened multiple times in my career. I would say the first one was like just challenging myself to stop using manual therapy. And I think a lot of people think that we've all like kind of just emerged as a fully formed clinician. And like, I've never like done anything <laughs> like that's not evidence-based day one out of school, but you know, like I'm not going to date myself as much as Derek, but I graduated eight years ago and I got my first smartphone with my first paycheck as a per diem therapist. So I yeah, had limited access to like what was going around in like the more like kind of like national PT uh, world. I just kind of knew what I learned at school. So I just like did all the basic stuff until I got started like facing what was probably uh, more in my face about the limited support beyond like short-term pain relief by manual therapy. I just remember like deciding one day, like I am going to start using it less and less and less and seeing how my outcomes go and then just kind of go down to the bare minimum and stop there. And then I don't know how long it took me, a couple months, maybe like a year, where I came out the other side and was like just not doing it anymore. Um, so it wasn't like I just like decided it was stupid and didn't do it from day one, which I think sometimes students get a weird kind of uh, perception of that. And then to kind of riff off of Mike, I think the pain exploration of the last few years of much to uh Derek probably chagrin of having to well, we had to like almost start a new uh instagram thread to avoid some of the <laughs> philosophical bar- philosophical barking but uh it was like you know i could you come to a point where you're like i need to understand this better and i need to see where this takes me but i want to come back around the other side so that like i'm how do i pragmatically apply this to like the the clinical environment. And I think if you saw how I practice like maybe like four or five years ago and, and now it might not look different on the surface, but I think like my whys and how I approach each case is stronger from that perspective. So it was like, while I may have done squatting with someone four or five years ago, and now I'm doing squatting again in the context of knee pain, I find that like my, like rigor of like my why has been solidified more and more and that I understand it's like not just one thing like it's not just like pain is in the brain or it's not that like you know I need to you know understand design to understand pain but that like I can collect things along the way and come out and approach it a little bit more pragmatically at the same time and I think my headspace right now is like figuring out again like how can we be a good technical clinician without essentially making up bullshit and feeding into any kind of like overdiagnosis or over pathological mechanisms. So it's just interesting thinking about like that journey and how it might look the same, but your whys change along, along the way. Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, my mentor always instilled that like always confident, never sure interaction. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like drilled into my head. Um, I wish in some of my earlier interactions with other clinicians and even professors in school, they would have shown a little more of their hand in the never sure side of it. 
because I think all we end up seeing a lot of times is that always confident. And there is always that draw to someone who is confident in what they're saying and in just accepting it for what it is, especially if we don't really have a frame of reference from which to like make an oppositional statement. It's just, well, this person certainly seems like they know what they're talking about and I know nothing on the topic. So therefore, hurrah, let's do this. Like, this is where my belief is. And I still remember um, there was discussion about an experiment where they asked some people, like they gave them a narrative and they, it was like a house was catching on fire and they said along the way that there were some flammable paint cans in the house. But then they explicitly said later in the story that flammable paint cans didn't cause the fire. And people still wanted to relate that as far as when they were asked what could have caused the fire, like as being what it is. So that first thing we hear, we tend to kind of latch on to. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll go into this more in depth when we talk about like the education side of things. But those initial conditions really do end up like setting up a lot of long-term belief systems. And, you know, if you go to a certain school, odds are like if they have a slant towards a certain system, that's what you're going to hear. And I think even in the realm of like early career continuing education, this is where I really advocate to check out some different things instead of just going whole hog at one uh, certification just because what ends up happening is the more you kind of sample these things, the more you realize one of two things. They're either saying the exact same thing, but giving like a different underlying cause, or they're saying something so contradictory that there's no way that, that like both of them can be factual or science-based. And then most of the time when you start looking at the roots of both of those, you realize well, neither of them are. And, you know, I think at this point, whenever I see like this system was developed by someone, comma, certification, uh, comma, their own certification. And then the best one is like, comma, register trademark. And you're like, oh, OK, yeah, let's, let's let's give it 17 years. And you realize that we tend to place our certainty on how much something is going to work way ahead of our willingness to cover all of our bases, making sure that it actually works. And when we look at the evidence towards things like confidence and demeanor and in human interaction, having such a huge role in contextual effects and outcomes, well, it's no wonder that you can have a like quote unquote positive outcome with a lot of people, regardless of what you're saying. And it has nothing to do, well, it obviously has something to do with the message, but a lot of it comes down to basically like how confident you can appear, how personable you are, how engaging you are, not how good of a message you're actually presenting, which I think makes it all that much more important that we as clinicians learn those like quote unquote soft skills, even though I would say they're pretty hard skills to develop but we really buttress what we're saying against what the evidence would support being as true as we know it to be at this given time.
There was a lot there. I don't know where to, I don't know where to go. I might going to say something profound there. I was going to give him the floor. Um, no, and I think. Oh, no, I don't have anything profound. I think that's what I value of like when I look back at my clinical practice and where I ended up now is those first couple of years of trying to figure out like how to talk to people, how to listen to people. I got the opportunity to work in that like community based hospital setting, which you see like everybody and everything and using maybe an interpreter, you know, 10% of the time. And you really get to work on a lot of that stuff. Um, and you get a little bit more wider range of like what the healthcare field looks like. So I do feel like some of our, you know, audience and some of our niche is obviously going to be directed towards like the more narrow musculoskeletal care. And even beyond that a little bit more into like sports med and athletics, but uh, we're obviously a part of a greater system. And I think some of those experiences help a lot. And then as you get, further into your career and you start to like niche down a little bit all that basis is there and you can refine it and further apply it um i I don't know if derek was saying this off the air about the different kind of clinics or we were talking about it in here but it's like each each environment each clinical setting has provided like new opportunities to kind of like refine those soft skills and then you know that's where like you look confident and that's where that that comes from but it doesn't come easy. I, there's still times I get flustered now, you know, I, I think it'd be remiss to like, say that you nail every single interaction. Um, yeah, this is impossible, but that's always, there's always something to learn and gain from that, which is the exciting part. I think about for me, for clinical practice is like, I feel like there's always something to learn. There's always something to like gain from a, an experience. And there's always like every new person is like a legitimately different situation. So it never gets really like boring in that sense. Well, I think some of this even comes down to the, like the great what is hard conversation. And uh, if you've worked in a community-based system or you've done some inpatient in some like areas where you know you're seeing very complex trauma with comorbidities, it it, it changes your perspective on how much you really need to overcomplicate. Uh, a case of low back pain. Mm-hmm. And I think that perspective is lacking a lot of times in like how hard it actually needs to be. And, you know, I've said before, when someone interacts with me, I, I would like to hope they come away from their interaction with more solutions than problems in the rehab setting. And I feel a lot of those interactions really are predicated upon, well, let me run you through my seven screens and my tests that have no validity or reliability. And then I'm going to list off all the things that according to my perception, we need to address instead of, well, there's a high likelihood this is going to get better. What steps do we need to do to really facilitate that likelihood as much as we can? Yeah. Just hearing you two talk, um, I think the two big things that have been nice to learn in school, but then also like develop maybe a bit faster along the way would be context, which I think is what you're hitting on Derek with like, yeah, okay. You know, we can find, you know, spinal alterations in folks, but most of schooling for me was like, here are these, you know, 100 different types of problems that we need to try to fix versus like 
know, a lot of this is a part of being a human being and the, the relationship to what they're presenting with is variable and probably doesn't need to be specifically and directly addressed. So learning about context to patient presentations versus just like everything's a pathology that needs to be fixed would have gone a long ways as well as like understanding the necessity for like imaging. So like, oh, cool. I can, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, I can do this, but you never stop to ask yourself like, should I do this? Is this necessary to be done? Do I need that image? Um, do I need to do that intervention to get the outcomes that I'm looking for? And then I think the last thing would be communication. Um, just like, you know, I learned, Derek and I have this conversation all the time. I learn a lot of things in life just because of my personality as trial by fire. Um, so it would have been nice to like have a little bit more reps under my belt with having conversations with individuals um, and figuring out like, how do you talk to a human being in this context? You know, I had worked in like cells and um, other like, uh, jobs that are public facing, but it wasn't in the context of like, I need to have this, you know, conversation with this person about this issue that they're dealing with and then create a game plan with them about how to move through this and what do we need to do? So complex decision-making and clinical practice, that would have been nice. I feel like the bulk of my training was find pathology, identify pathology with investigation and then treat conservatively or refer. Um, I think the other thing too, just out of fourth one actually would have been, a better understanding of health and like, where do I fit in the picture of healthcare from the standpoint of like, you know, I'm talking to someone with low back pain, but you know what? They also have longstanding depression. They're also dealing with anxiety. They also have morbid mm -hmm. obesity. They're also dealing with hypertension. Like these are the things that I wish I would have, that I do now, but it wasn't really hammered in school of like, Hey, you know, really ultimately your title is healthcare professional. And so you still need to be addressing all these other potential variables that are, if not more important than the low back pain, they're there for you. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that can't be overemphasized enough. Yeah. No, and that's been something where I think even, even in the last three years, we've really kind of had a shift towards more what I would call like global health initiative versus like specific health initiative. And, it, you know, I think even six or seven years ago, we were having conversations about, you know, treat the person, not the joint, but really I think now it's like treat the person within the community and listen to their stories, not the like whatever's going on in I think sometimes it's just appreciating that people need to have their stories heard in order to really kind of move forward out of things. And we spend so much time talking to or at that we forget that really one of the most beneficial things is to listen. which is amen. somewhat meta as I'm sitting here talking on a podcast. <laughs> Can so. I get an amen? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, no, I, I, I agree with all that. And I think even something like, uh, not something like the, the actual pandemic highlights a lot of that need to really be more globally focused on like what people need and you don't know what people need unless you ask them and listen to them. And I think that's something I always try to get across with, uh, with students is like, you can't assume uh, why you think the patient's here today, even though they, it says like low back pain, 
but you need to like actually ask them like you know what what you know what are you seeking in terms of like how i can best help you you know there's a couple of questions we go through a lot of times but like i like that one um you know how do you foresee this rehab process going things like that where you actually get an understanding of like where they're coming from and, and instead of just assuming that they need to have like the stamp and then the exact prescription and go from there. Some people do want that, but you're not going to know unless you actually like ask them what they need and uh, kind of what ails in them. Theory, with there, it brings up a good point about even some of the interactions that we have in like the Facebook group and things like that, where people will ask a question and sometimes like we want to answer. It's just, we need the full story and there is always this balance that needs struck between like us wanting to help us wanting to give answers and the amount of information we really needed in order to give an adequate answer. And a lot of times it's, you know, it would be easy just to say like, go do X, Y, and Z, but it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Except and do your capitalism. We do our best Yes. Um, but I think it's, it's easier sometimes just to say, this doesn't seem like it's anything that you need to worry about right now. Like those instances are, are a little bit easier to pick up on, but the problem is even then, if you look at like priors, most of the time, how we really set things up is under the guise of like, you're probably going to get better out of this. And I think even that shifts a little bit of the paradigm from the interpretation of the message, because like if, if that's kind of your preset, you're still like, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? And it, you know, it, it loses a little bit of its, uh, its luster. I think when it gets said a little too often to too many people and you get to see it. And, and that's really where like sitting down, going through that personal interaction, having that conversation comes into play. Yeah. Get to know the human in front of you before you just start like, looking for problems to fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it is interesting how much more at this point in my career, I find myself talking to people about like sleep, what they do for fun, what, you know, their favorite, whatever is versus like how a certain muscle is functioning. And it really is. It gets back to that. Like, are you doing the basic things that we know show to have an effect on long-term health. And if you're not doing those things, like I don't care how much your quad is amnesic or, you know, whatever we malady we want to put in place. Um, but the problem is when we sit there and just keep overemphasizing that one thing, that one thing, that one thing, then we may be like underemphasizing the 17 other things that also factor in to kind of getting over the hump out of this. It also almost like distills it way too far down. Like, especially like these impairment based approaches of like, Oh yeah, you do just have X and we just need to do Y. I think that makes it in most scenarios far too reductionist. And we don't pay attention to the factors that you're talking about with sleep that probably actually do have a more meaningful impact on the person long-term, even outside of the time that they're not seeing you. And after they see you, so it's, it's just like, yeah, 
you know, the, it's a, it's the same drum we're always beating with like shifting our models as it relates to clinical practice. If you're trained to be a fixer and doer and look for impairments and that's the only thing you're doing, then, um, you know, you try to get these very easy, succinct solutions, like just go do bird dogs and dead bugs for low back pain and you'll be fine. When really it's a quite complex issue and we probably should layer some complexity into it and give more tangible long-term things that someone can make actionable for self-management versus the fixer and doer approach for repeat business. I almost want to create like Miles's uncertainty principle for rehab to piggyback off of like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. It's like the more you sit there and try and look for the position, the more impossible or the more or the less possible it is to figure out direction, momentum, all that stuff. It's like the more we sit there and try and really pin down the diagnosis, the like less possible it is to figure out what the actual prognosis is. And I, yeah. I think there is something to be said for like the corollary between those two. Like I'm, I'm more interested in looking for obstacles that we need to remove to get you where you're going than anything that's in place that likely may play a role, but in the grand scheme of things, like isn't going to change without a long-term intervention anyway. Yeah, it's yeah. there. I have conversations a lot of times with athletes when we're talking about like some perceived symmetry change or, you know, a range of motion deficit and like, well, we can work on this, but really it comes down to how much work you want to put in because as we start getting closer and closer to that, like ideal, it, it is an asymptotic approach to where like we can always approach the line, but it's very rare it's achieved because it just takes so much more work to get over that last bit of hump for whatever we're trying to really go for. Man, I must be like on fire today. I haven't ever shut you two up this much. <laughs> I'm just doing that. I'm just, just coming off my... like a com- complete <laughs> idiot. I'm just doing my best job to listen. Um, no, um, no. I'm not, I thought what you said no. was was spot on. Yeah. I think right, it was a lot. Later. <laughs> uh. <laughs> no, I just think like to agree with that. Just like to like understand enough to like actually take action, but not to like try to like good enough is good in, in a way. Like it doesn't need to be perfect that as long as we kind of have a common understanding of how to move forward, then like start taking action on that and then seeing where it takes you. Um, and I borrowed that a little bit from like Scott Morrison and being like, try to figure out just like kind of where to start and then start doing that stuff. And then you can see where that's, where you're heading. And for rehab, it's all like, we talk a lot about how rehab is a process. So you have to like actually start the process to understand the process is actually moving in the direction you want it to go. So, you know, finding exactly the coordinates of like what that starting position is on the map is not, not that important. Yeah, exactly. It, it is interesting. We talk about like it being a process and when you're starting to talk about like process from the business side of things, they always get into like, what's the rate limiting step? What's the thing yep. that's going to slow us down the most? And I think 
we should actually probably build out that same principle here in, in the rehab side of things. It's like, what's the thing that's going to stop us making progress more than anything else? It, it may not be whatever your most likely is not whatever your image is. It's likely some other behavior that if we really start tweaking, we can have a positive outcome much quicker than if we just sit here and like treat the quote unquote tissue itself. I was thinking about this while you guys were talking, um, especially with like listening more and, and Amato was like, yeah, the mouth isn't the most important. I would say another thing that's definitely evolved for me is uh, humility for sure. But also like what goes with that is being more human to the person you're trying to help. So like being understanding, like, um, something I don't like hearing is like, Oh, the patient's non-compliant. It's like, well, look, you know, have you actually talked to this human being? Like they work two jobs, they're a single parent, they're on not great insurance for reimbursement. They only are allotted X number of visits per year for this not great insurance. We're in a pandemic, which hopefully has taught a lot of us how to be more human with one another. I think that was something that like year one, like in practice, probably year two was very much like, here's this very specific plan we're going to run. Um, without a lot of flexibility, but then realizing like, you know what, you need to meet people where they're at, realize they're human beings, lives well outside of your own clinic. And there's only so much, you know, bandwidth you can have for this issue on their part. And so you've got to be a, a facilitator, but not someone who's just like so rigid without flexibility and not understanding the human in front of you and the, kind of the constraints that are on them with their own life. So you're saying we need to be more flexible so we should stretch our minds around the patient? <laughs> minds, hamstrings, I don't know. <laughs> the mobility of the mind. Low-hanging fruit. I had to yeah. take a swing at that one. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's the name of Man, that be a book right there. I think there. we might just, yeah. <laughs> we have just stumbled upon our million-dollar idea, fellas. Uh, yeah. I, I think what will be interesting is how things continue to evolve over time. Like I actually look forward to seeing where I am like 10 years from now. And it, as much as, you know, we talk about the whole like clinical experience and some of the problems that come with relying on that. I do think there are certain things that can really only be gained in terms of both perspective and just practice from having reps and it, having worked in some different systems now and, and seeing how they're run, it, it is always uh, interesting to start somewhere new and have that like gap in interaction to where, you know, the system is used to doing things one way. I have my clinical practice saying that we may need to do it another way. And likely neither side is 100% right. It's just where does that meeting in the middle happen? And I think too often, you know, we look for these, like in the Venn diagram overlap of things from the clinical practice side line, or side of things, like we want it to be closer to a circle, whereas we probably grow a little bit more when there is a little bit more separation, because all of a sudden we're starting to challenge some like fundamental beliefs. And one thing I can say with a high degree of certainty is uh, I've ran face first into many walls of concepts where going into it, I thought it was the way 
and then started looking for the evidence to back it up and had that like, oh, oh, that's that's not the case at all. And I, I think even now when we're talking about the evidence side of things, one of the problems we've run into is over the past you know seven to 10 years, there's been this movement to where it, we're getting a lot more commentary and a lot less research being published. And we'll look at some concepts like uh, the acute and chronic training load concept where there's like maybe six papers, six research papers and like 70 commentaries. So when you start seeing those ratios, you're like, well, absolutely, this has to be the way. And then when you start getting into the weeds of really what backs it up and then you're like, well, let me go read some Franco and Pelizzari. And all of a sudden you're walking around with a headache for two days questioning your entire existence. Yeah, I, I had this conversation recently. I forget who I was talking to. Uh, it may have even been on another podcast, but I was like, I've, I've learned a lot of wrong answers. I don't know that I have a lot of like right answers, but when someone's like, well, you know, someone has low back pain, I'm like, I probably could give you the 30 things it's not. Um, and that's usually how I think about things these days. Yeah, and once again, that kind of goes back to that, like, what's the rate limiting step? And I think that's the approach I really try and take these days is like, what would, what would rule out or like some, like my plan. And I think that's, it's a hard thing to look for disconfirming evidence. But I also think like as a clinician, it's one of the things that inspires growth because I think if we're always looking for things to confirm, like one, it makes us feel good, but over time, I feel like I've ran into so many things that have made me question so many concepts that I would consider relatively core tenets to where now if something comes up and it just completely is like a well done paper that rocks my foundation, it still like rocks. But like now I'm like, whatever, it's Tuesday, like it's there'll be another one next Thursday. And you just kind of learn to like ride the wave a little bit more like I remember, you know, five or six years ago, I was reading a lot of books on like neuroscience and magic. And they were talking about how like a lot of magicians are skeptics. And it's because like, when you realize how easy you are to be fooled, you just end up like starting to question a lot more. And I think there's something to be said for that in the rehab profession. Like I've, I've realized I'm a fool enough times now to where like, I, I just titrate accordingly whenever I'm shown it once again. Mm-hmm. it's fun though at least I think it's fun yeah yeah I mean it's 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 a process to go back to where we were out of it and I think it's mm-hmm. just that kind of continued growth but it's also like I look forward to some of the like interactions with clinicians that I look up to that hold viewpoints that don't directly align with mine because I'm like, well, you know, it, we're, it's like we're about to play a game of Magic the Gathering. Like, let's get our cards out and see where this goes. I'm so happy you made that reference. I gar- guarantee you <laughs> that's the first <laughs> reference of Magic the Gathering in a Barbell Medicine podcast. Yeah, I don't think they I'm just uh, impressed you need the name. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Excellent. 
Well, I think that like hopefully gives people some insight into the evolution of our careers. Um, you know, I think all of us have accepted this a number of years ago. You know, if you talk to us in 10 years, odds are we're going to talk about how dumb we were 10 years ago. And that's kind of the whole point uh, for doing our jobs correctly. Mm -hmm. So I think the next podcast will kind of get into a little more, you know, nuance on our schooling, the, our like individual backgrounds with schooling, how we felt about schooling. Um, and then go through like, cause I know uh, we've gotten a lot of questions on this of like, should I go into PT? Should I go into Cairo? Do I want to be a rehab clinician? What does that mean? What can I do? So we'll kind of get into a little more like nitty gritty of schooling based stuff and part two of this series. You guys have anything else to add? Look, no, I'm just looking forward to that discussion. Just um, waiting on my tomatoes to grow. Yeah. I think it's funny, actually. I think today I graduated PT school eight years ago. So it'll be fun trying to look back on that and uh, cipher out something meaningful. Well, on the plus side, you're not as old as Derek. No, I'm not as old as Derek. So. Just going to keep the gray beard progression going on here. All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning into this podcast. And uh, if you ever need any help with pain and injury or rehabilitation and you have questions, you're not sure how to get back to activity, you can go to barbellmedicine.com. Just click on the coaching tab, scroll down to the bottom and fill out our questionnaire. And we'll get you set up with one of our pain and rehab clinicians and try to help you out. As always, thanks for listening and tune in next time. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.